The domestic season may be over, but we still have the Champions League and Europa League to come, and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm delighted to say we've got the gang back together today with James Moore and also Charlie Eccleshare. Um, Charlie, am I right in thinking you're now a father? You are correct, yes. Uh, Congratulations. Imagine if you just said no then, that would have been really (laughs) That would have been, no I'm not. Um, Yes, no I am. Tangy Musa Eccleshare was born uh, on 21st of July. Uh, we're delighted. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's been great. I, I I have felt a couple of like sort of Premier League cliches running through my head during it. You know, everyone tells you their ups and downs, so it's that thing of like you know the heart. Don't take for granted when things are going well, and never believe that you're as bad as everyone's saying when things are going badly. So yeah, just trying to very much take each day as it comes. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been good. But good to be back as well. There's a thing that our athletic colleague Adam Hurry tweeted when he first became a father. A clip from the the Impossible Job, the the Grant mm-hmm. Taylor documentary mm-hmm. of him saying, <laughs> "Now this is a test." When I think they're two 0 down to Norway or something, is that uh, has that proven to be the case? Yeah, I mean it's it's that equivalent, isn't it, of you know changing a nappy at four a.m. on a baking hot. Uh, August morning. You, you know, need Laurie McMenemy, really. That's the problem. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, it's it's constant that, and you know, I guess the equivalent of the uh, the, the critics is the feeling that you know, am I am I being judged by my in laws or by friends that come round? So you know, it's uh, a, a real insight into what professional athletes have to go through. Stamina as well becomes a big thing. Amazing. Well, um, congratulations to you and I hope the family are all doing well. Um, it's obviously just over two weeks since Spurs last played Palace. Um, and I think we've all spent a lot of that time enjoying the photographs on Instagram of Spurs players' summer holidays, haven't we, James? I have, yeah. I mean, Charlie probably has had better things to do, but I've, <laughs> I've certainly enjoyed the Instagram stories and the photography and the little video of Davinson Sanchez doing his dance off a yacht and then, and then throwing himself into the sea. It looks like they're having a good time. I don't understand... Why they're hanging around with Ezekiel Levetsky though? Where's that come from? I can't. I can't see that anyone's played with him before out of that lot. Yeah, I don't really know either because I can't. You're right. In terms of club football, unless there was anywhere, who did Levetsky play for in Argentina? Did he play for River? Or no, didn't he play for San Lorenzo? Um, yeah, maybe. I'm gonna look this up on my yeah, laptop did, right yeah. now. I think he played for San Lorenzo. I mean, I guess would he have played for Argentina with Lamella? Maybe I guess. Well, Levetsky, he his he was at Rosario. In his youth, and that's where Lacelso started, wasn't it? Yeah, but he's, he's presumably he's sufficiently older than Lacelso that he would yeah. have been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got to be at least ten years older. Yeah. For listeners who are like not quite as sad as us, basically, um, Dyer, I think it was Dyer, Foyth, Lacelso, and Lamella and were Sanchez. in 
and Sanchez were in Ibiza with Lavezzi. And they've been there for a while now. I think <laughs> Dyer posted a photo on um, on Instagram the other day. I think he's playing chess with Lo Celso. And they're just like hanging around on a yacht in the bay, um, which looks really, really fun. I think it's a slightly different sort of holiday from the one that Deli Alley had in Ibiza where he went with um, Jack Grealish and James Madison. Uh, but that that's the beauty of Ibiza, really, is that you can, you know, there's, if you want to go out partying, you can do that. And if you want to just relax in a nice setting, you can do that as well. Jack, you really are, you're like the most unlikely advocate for Ibiza, but uh, like, you seem to go on about this all the time. Really? <laughs> I love Ibiza. I, Ibiza's yeah. like my favourite place in the world. I know, you this, is a, this is a Wayne Lineker thing, isn't it, really? Well, I mean, obviously I have been to Ocean Beach, uh, which is Wayne Lineker's club in San An, uh, which is really, really good fun, like, would totally recommend. But, you know, for the, for the, I appreciate there are some people out there who wouldn't enjoy Ocean, uh, and for them there's lots of great stuff to do as well. Right now, we're offering listeners of this show the opportunity to try out The Athletic for free. You can enjoy all of our great writing on Spurs, including a recent article on the players who could join Hoiberg at the club this summer. Sign up for a 30-day free trial by going to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. That's theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. I think Vertonghen's in Ibiza as well. Juan uh, Foy, I think, is now in Sardinia. Uh, Serge Aurier's been in Paris. So it looks like Spurs players are having a bit of fun before... They go back, I think it's next week, Charlie. Yeah, Monday. Uh, I mean, did you say as well, talking of social media activity, Mourinho put this video on Instagram, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, starting to plan for the new season type thing and scanned across. There was this brief glimpse of his diary, which uh, not really sure if that was deliberate or not. But anyway, you know, suffice to say, it was then poured over in pretty forensic detail. And yes, yeah, seems to suggest that Monday is when they're coming back uh, with a double session. Um, so yeah a, a week's more of holiday also Jack weren't you just in Sardinia as well uh, no so I was just in Venice so I was meant oh, to you be in Venice, sorry. I was meant to be in Sardinia uh, this summer to get married but we had to cancel that because of coronavirus so I went to went to Venice instead which was actually really nice because there were there was hardly anyone there that must have been and quite weird being in an empty yeah it, w- it was weird but it also meant that you didn't have to really queue for that much mm. if you wanted to go and see like the, the Tintorettos or whatever you didn't really have to queue you could just walk straight in was you was your holiday more eric dyer in ibiza or delhi alley in ibiza uh well that's interesting i didn't go on a yacht but i also didn't go to like any clubs so uh i don't know probably maybe slightly more on the dyer side but sure just to go back to this this lad's holiday it did it seem strange to i mean i guess a lad's holiday by definition but did it seem strange to anyone else that none of these players seem to have their partners there for this like long break the only time they seem to be getting off this year they've all gone off together and seemingly none of their partners are there unless they just weren't in those photos could those have been you know a couple of days where you know the lads went and did their thing maybe um, but it seems to have been, i mean if they've been quite clever with the way they've spread the the photos there if that's the case because we're talking about sort of 10 days 2 weeks now this has been going on yeah i think i have seen some photos of the players with their other halves. Um, okay, fine. I don't know whether they joined up separately or they've gone and done done their separate things. I'm sure Foyd is in Sardinia with his wife. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is a that's a that's a really good point. And you're you're right. We should try and get to the bottom of why Lavezzi was there. Uh, it could be, <laughs> it's could the, be it's a good piece of the summer. It is. Yeah, yeah. He's a great player. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten how long he's been in China. I mean, he moved to China in 2016. That's a, he's been there a long time. Oh wow, it's a four-year stretch. Yeah, if you think he's only well, oh, he's 35. I thought he was a bit younger than that. So moving, he was 31. 
Great player back in the day. Yeah, I remember seeing him. He absolutely destroyed City in a Champions League game in the first season that City were in the Champions League in 2011 Oh, for Napoli? For Napoli, yeah, before he went to PSG. Mm. And I think... Is that right? He did go to PSG, didn't he? I'm not making that up. Yeah, they had, when they had him and Cavani. Yeah, but Cavani obviously made much more of an impact at PSG than Lovetsy ever did. Anyway, uh, the big news in, <laughs> in Spurs land this week is Pierre-Emile Hoiberg is, I think, currently having his medical. It's what? It's Monday lunchtime while, while we record this, which would hopefully, and assuming this all goes to plan, it would bring quite quite a satisfying conclusion to a few weeks of negotiations for Tottenham, wouldn't it, Charlie? Yeah, it feels like um, a pretty smart signing and, and, and quite in, I was thinking about it, quite that Mourinho uh, mould of signing. You know, he's, I feel like when there is a an issue, he's normally quite quick to resolve it in the transfer market. Um, and this is someone who, you know, they've been linked with for a while. It's been trailed for a while, obviously with him getting stripped of the Southampton captaincy. And he will, in theory, offer them, you know, a lot of what they've been crying out for—a a genuine ball-winning central midfielder. Um, you know, they've really missed that certainly over the last season. So, it, it feels like a, a potentially, you know, quite exciting signing. I mean, I, I know some some of the fans have been a bit sneery, maybe, and felt, oh, he's a Europa League level player for a Europa League club. But I think he's a good signing. I think there's a lot of talent there. He's still pretty young. Um, so yeah, I guess you just hope it's the, the first, the first of a few uh, kind of similar signings uh, over the course of the season, uh, over the what, course of the preseason. What I would say about that sneering, um, and I've seen a bit of that as well, is that when Spurs signed, you know, if you go back eleven years, when Spurs signed Wilson Palacios, people thought this was kind of a mid-table player signing from a mid-table club who couldn't possibly really improve a team, but. He, I guess, was kind of a platform for more talented players to thrive. So if you think of Modric and I guess to an extent Bale with the way that things kind of digged around, they both really benefited from a player like that coming into the team. Um, and I suppose you could say a similar thing happened when Scott Parker signed two, two three years after that. And uh, our old friend Victor Wanyama as well, right? I mean, you know, just because these players aren't the most gifted technically, um, and, and obviously we're not saying they're clowns uh, doesn't mean they're not going to bring something to the team and, and I, you can see you know and we've talked about it before but having having someone like Koyberg at the, at the base of that midfield should theoretically allow Lascelles perhaps and Dombele to kind of have a bit more freedom and to play much better you would have thought yeah and also I mean he's he is someone who has played a lot more progressively in the past and he was his idol growing up was actually Zinedine Zidane um you know, he he evolved into this more defensive player more recently, and and also just on that theme of you know signing players who are perceived to be mid-table or Europa League quality. We've talked about it before, but you know we think Liverpool the summer when they signed uh, Vinaldum, Mane, then Andy Robertson. I think the following summer, you know th- those th- those were not exactly household names at that time. They were players who, with good coaching and playing at a higher level, have kicked on and became what they are now. So. Uh, it, it's by no means impossible that I'm not saying Hoiberg will then by definition go on a similar journey, but it's perfectly possible that, uh, you know, if the raw materials are there and I think, you know, most most of our listeners uh, will be familiar with how much Pep Guardiola rated him at Bayern Munich. You know, this is a really talented player. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's lots to work with there. Um, and, and it's just about how he, you know, 
steps up to dealing with a greater pressure and scrutiny than certainly since Bayern he would have been used to really. Just just to go back to the all-important Lovetsy issue, um, I, I think I'm right to <laughs> say that Hoiberg, Hoiberg also performed well against Manchester City in the Champions League um, when he was at Bayern, I think. Jack, I don't know if you remember that. Oh yeah, I'm trying to remember which... Was that in the 3-1 away win, the, the 3-1 win at the Etihad, where, they, where Bayern absolutely schooled City? Yeah, they battered City that game, it was really incredible. Um, and that was before the game where City then won and they won 3-2 and then if they'd won 4-2 they would have won the group and it became a bit of a thing. Yeah. Oh, because Pellegrini didn't realise or something like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, he was... It's, it's really interesting, actually, because I was reading I was reading Dave Heitner's interview in The Guardian with with Hoiberg, which he did two just under two years ago. And Hoiberg said to him that he made a big step under Pep and he really liked the way he wanted to play football and thought about football. And yet, of course, he's now going to have to go and work for a manager who's basically the opposite of Pep and has a very different conception of like how he wants a team to play and much less to do with possession and much more much more pragmatic, I think, than, than Guardiola is. So, in a sense, it's a very different challenge. But I also think that looking at his evolution, he's kind of the... He is the perfect man for what Spurs need. Like the, we all know that Spurs have got, you know, Spurs have got some pretty good forwards, and they've got some. Well, they've got two very good creative midfielders, uh, with obviously big question marks over one of them. But what they don't have at all is someone to win the ball back in front of the defence. Like that's been glaringly obvious to anyone who's watched Tottenham over the last sort of three years, really. Um, and the fact is that Hoiberg is the best, you know, one, probably the best in the league at that. Like I was reading a piece by our athletic colleague Karl Anker um, about this and he's which he published back in May and he said that Hoiberg was top of ball recoveries per 90 in the Premier League for this season up, up at that point with 10.5 which is more than Fred, Jorginho, Wilfred and Didi and those guys so I think like James says it should really be the the perfect platform and I imagine he'll have quite a ta- tactically restricted role in the team how many have interest and in you, you if you've seen the list already james i suspect you have uh, of the i don't know if this is everyone but i think it is uh the, of the there are 12 players before hoibjerg who've played for both Mourinho and guardiola um oh. i mean so, well, it's, it's a stellar list yeah well both of you you know you uh, see if you see how many Zlatan, you can name Zlatan and eto i think were they both kind of because they were yeah. in that deal so i think they might have both Cesc Fabregas, yeah. Iron Robin. Xavi Alonso, yeah. Ida Johnson. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. These, obviously. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, I actually, I mean, fun. like, I have seen a list circulating, but I would have known them anyway. And you, you have to take my word on that. <laughs> uh, That's it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you've ones. got, you've got the obvious ones. Then the less obvious ones. Did you say Schweinsteiger? No, um, I didn't. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. So that's quite a good one, isn't it? Uh, Maxwell. Yes. Oh. Maxwell, the most decorated player in European football, I believe. Um, more, more than this other guy, Pedro. Oh yeah, uh, isn't he? Yeah. Isn't he the kind of? Oh uh, yeah, he, he complete football yeah, he last year. Yeah, that's right. That might just be that he'd won everything. It might be that Maxwell still has more. I'm Maybe. not sure. Uh, Wait, Pedro is on the list as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Pizarro. I presume that's Claudio Pizarro. And would he have played for both Mourinho and Guardiola? He was at Chelsea, wasn't he, for a bit? So he would have played for Mourinho then. Oh, yes, he was, yeah. Did oh, and then at Bayern, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. And then... Yeah, back to Bayern after Chelsea. Was he not at Bayern before Chelsea? He... Oh, I, mean, I think really... 
I think he did go back there. And then this la- this one was quite a good one. Um, Alexis Sanchez. Oh, yeah. I want to yeah. say Javi Martinez, but that's not correct, is it? No. It Incorrect. Incorrect. Yes, I think Xabi Alonso is quite an instructive example here because he, he's a player who, unlike some of the people on that list, really flourished under both managers. And when he was at... When he was at Real Madrid, he was one of the kind of, uh, what, two or three defensive midfielders. What, what do they call it? The high-pressure triangle that Mourinho employed. And he was one of Mourinho's main enforcers on the pitch. And I remember Mourinho doing a press conference, I think back when he was at Chelsea the second time, saying that when he took over at Real, he wasn't sure about Alonso, if he'd be his kind of player. But then he really loved him. And he did everything that Mourinho wanted him to do, including what what is now known on the internet as shithousing. Um and then, hmm. and this went down really, really badly with people at Barcelona, and they thought, oh, you know, I can't believe that Alonso, who we used to think was our guy, and he was on the Spain national team and everything, has has really bought into the Jose ethic, and he's kind of created all this discord with the um, with the Spanish players at Barcelona, and he was a real Jose loyalist right to the end, Alonso, unlike unlike quite a lot of his teammates. And then it was quite controversial, apparently, when Pep took Alonso to Bayern. Because lots of people were like, Pep, like, this guy's Jose's mate, you can't have him. And yet, of course, Alonso, even though by that stage he could barely run, was fantastic for Bayern at the end of his career. So, again, because he had both had, like, the kind of discipline to play the sort of Mourinho game, but also the the intelligence and the skill and the flexibility to play the kind of Guardiola game. And obviously, Hoiberg, you know, he's only 25. It would be amazing if he could achieve half of what Xabi Alonso does in the game. But I just wonder whether he might be able to to be that kind of like shithousey enforcer in the same way that Alonso was for Jose's Real Madrid. Yeah, and and because wasn't Alonso? He was one of the players who deliberately got himself booked, wasn't he, in that Champions League game? Do you remember that when they oh yeah they yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. get themselves suspended for a dead rubber? I think it was against Ajax, and they and there was that footage of him getting instructions from Mourinho. And what was it? They kicked the ball away or didn't line up ten ten yards. They didn't take kick. goal kicks. I think I think they refused that to take. Was, a goal oh, he kick. went to take a goal kick and then just took ages over it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great, wasn't it? When Mourinho was like, you know, pantomime villain, those things were so entertaining. Yeah, like the laundry basket. Yeah, exactly. I think that's something that people kind of miss with Jose is that he, he mm. he's really funny. Like he's capable of being, yeah. like whatever you think about him, like football-wise, morally, whatever, he's, ca- he's very playful and he's got a good sense of humour. And obviously like a lot of that is tied up in his own his own ego and everything, but he knows how to be entertaining in a way that say Guardiola has no interest in theatrics at all or no interest in putting on a show. And that's really fun. Yeah, he's so provocative, it's it's very entertaining. So I think I, I kind of get the impression that the three of us are all pretty pretty enthusiastic about Hoiberg. I think I like I said, I think it, I think it's exactly exactly what what Tottenham needs in that position also another thing we should point to is that again this is in Carl's piece and also a piece that Alex Stewart's written for The Athletic Hoiberg was kind of really essential to how Ralph Hasenhutl set up at Southampton because they played this kind of 4-2-2-2 is how Carl likes to describe it and Hoiberg would be right alongside James Ward-Prowse in the middle and because they play such an aggressive pressing game all he his main job was winning the ball back then like a short, simple pass, not trying anything too flashy, um, but really kind of driving the engine of of the pressing of the team. Um, but he was he was really good at that. Do we think that kind of system could work for Spurs? I mean, if not a four two two two, but you know certainly that four two three one. But I, I wonder if I mean could four two two two? I mean, you then you might be sacrificing a Celso, I guess, in that system. But certainly for some games, you can imagine you know enabling to play Son 
uh, with Kane and then having more in Bergvine potentially could be quite exciting. I mean, could you not argue that that system that Mourinho played against uh, Arsenal was kind of something akin to that, maybe? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. With Sissoko, what, with, with Sissoko and Lucas on the wings? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a good performance. And Son basically playing as a sort of second striker. That yeah, was yeah. a bit of a turning point, that game. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I just wonder, I mean, would you play... I mean, you could have the so as that double pivot with Hoiberg. I mean, you, you might think it's bit of a waste of him but certainly as an option and he is so good he can be so good in that kind of scrapping um niggly role it's definitely definitely one to consider if you're listening jose (laughs) that's a really good question because there's so many different ways they could go they could play i mean it kind of depends on the formation but you could conceivably play i think if you played hoiberg with winks you get more out of winks i think you played hoiberg and sissoko you could see a better sissoko if you played Hoy- Hoiberg, could do the defending for Ndombele. He could do the defending for Lacelso. You could play him in a three with Lacelso and Ndombele or any of those other guys. So suddenly, I think he's just one of those, just like James was saying earlier, there's a great point about Palacios and Parker. He's a player whose presence and skill set will allow him to make everyone else around him better because they won't have to be doing the stuff that realistically none of them can do. Like none of those guys are good defensively. Uh, and Hoiberg is good defensively. So everybody will improve by virtue of his presence. Totally. I think that's such a good point and like that is you know we've spoken about that before with Winks and Sissoko that partnership and how they're both very good players they both offer a lot independent of one another but together it doesn't work and Hoiberg's kind of the opposite of that should should say as well from you know speaking to people who um who know him and have followed him from an early age he, he it does feel as well like he has the kind of attitude that you know we've often talked about and Mourinho's talked about and some of the players have talked about that they've lacked you know that again to use that internet internet-y word shithousery but m- more important than that just a, a real um kind of focus and extreme dedication and willingness and and, and maybe that's not what Spurs are lacking but a willingness to call people out for it and to really push himself you know it sounds like he is a real character he's obviously a real leader you know being captain at such a young age he's a very very smart guy um son of an anthropology professor I, th- I think he's just gonna he's gonna give them some bite some needle um and you know if they have like characters in the dressing room and people who are going to challenge the established order he's not going to be afraid to do that uh, even as a new signing and i think that could be a positive charlie are you saying that he's an intelligent c- yes well exactly that you, you, I, that's spot Nailed on it. and for those who for those who don't get that reference, this is what Jose Mourinho was urging his players to be. So that's uh, that's a really good reference. It's exactly what I think he is. I think that's also a very helpful uh, footnote there from Charlie. I think without that, people. Uh, yeah, thought, sorry. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it's going to get bleeped as well. I, I hope it is at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I think that he he is very clearly from from reading all the stuff about him and from speaking to people who know him. He's just very clearly a grown up. Like he left mm. he left Copenhagen for Brondby, which is very controversial when he was 14. Then got spotted for Bayern. Made the switch to Bayern at 16, I think, and was by the age of 17, he was already in Jupp Heynckes' first team, which says a lot. And he learned a lot at Bayern, but obviously had to go out on loan before he could he get his move because he needed development. So he's clearly a, a young player who's taken a lot of pressure and expectation willingly on his shoulders. And frankly, you know, when you hear Mourinho going on about the players' mentality and, and all the rest of it, like he did after Sheffield United a few months ago, you can tell that that is kind of precisely the type of character that I think that may, maybe they haven't had quite enough of in the last year or two. Yeah, and, and just on that theme, his dad died, um, you know, not long after his buy-in 
breakthrough and he, he and his dad were extremely close and that's said to have you know really shaped him and he's he's spoken very openly um about that but yeah i mean he, he grew up a huge amount in a, in a very short space of time so uh yeah he he, he uh spurs are getting a, a really strong character and it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out um especially as you know Mourinho's talked about wanting that tension and encouraging it between his players so maybe we'll see a few more of those uh that son and larice uh <laughs> coming together and and that would be great i think once hoybjerg is in the building what do you think would be the next priorities after that it's got to be the right back isn't it especially if all computers is going yeah that that i mean that and that's our understanding that that is a a priority area losing walker peters they suddenly look a bit short in that area i mean i know Juan Foyt can play there but um there's a reasonable chance he'll go out on loan this summer or could even leave altogether um so i think yeah that that feels like the next one and 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 like i say with Mourinho generally being quite good at you know identifying there's a problem and moving reasonably quickly to to solve it so i think we probably will see someone coming in in that area whether it's someone uh, like Max Ahrens who would supplant Aurier or whether it's someone to give him more competition, that's really the big decision uh, that Spurs need to make. And you know, and also they may be slightly um, beholden to how much they can afford. Um, but yeah, that that will be that that's a really important area. And the the ongoing issue of a someone to give Harry Kane uh, some relief up front, especially as Troy Parrott's gone out on loan. Uh, but the right back area, I would say, is a bigger priority right now. Should say on that actually as well. We've we've got a piece out that Jack and I worked on uh, with our friends at Tifo about Spurs targets, and we we touch on touch on some of these issues in that um, that went up over the weekend. So yeah, check that out if you haven't already. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash the lane and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of our show, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. And they deliver your beers straight to your front door. You don't even need to leave the house. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go www.beer52.com forward slash the lane to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, listeners get two extra free beers. Another series that we're running on The Athletic at the moment is looking at the 60 greatest players of the Premier League era. Uh, so we've all put our heads together, come up with a list, and then written pieces on, on each of these players, counting all the way up to one. Um, it's quite good fun, not least because everybody always disagrees with the results, and so you get lots of people moaning on Twitter and in the comments, which we love. But um, we've featured, I think, f- how many Tottenham players have we had so far? Five? We've had Les Ferdinand, Luka Modric, Teddy Sheringham, Jurgen Klinsmann, and Sol Campbell. Yeah, so four. Um, four, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of these pieces that I really enjoyed was by Raphael Honigstein about Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, it goes into detail on the amazing story of how he joined in 1994 when Alan Sugar basically showed up in Monaco on his yacht 
and uh, mm. got Klinsmann to come and join him on a lucrative two-year deal on £15,000 a week, which I think was then uh, more than double what any other Spurs player was on. And also it makes reference to what is now, I think, the incredibly jarring anti-German racism mm. and xenophobia that Klinsmann faced. So he's got to a bit have um, news of the world photographers following Klinsmann and his partner into a hotel and then Klinsmann tells them to go away and they write a headline which has got like a furious as in F-U-H-R hyphen I-O-U-S and like the the references to the Nazis in the Second World mm. War was everywhere. I remember when I was back in the start of uh, about a year ago I did a story about the Ardiles team in 94-5 and I spent I spent a few days in the British Library looking at papers from from sort of summer 94 when Klinsman signed and there's so many references to the Second World War it's unbelievable it's- well same um, Euro 96 a couple of years after remember it was like let's blitz the Fritz ahead of that um, the, the Germany semi-final I mean it was absolutely loaded with that kind of xenophobia yeah well, at the front of the mirror with uh, like Gaza and um and Stuart Pearce, I think, in sort of army helmets, like yelling. Mm, mm, yes. yes. It is incredible to think that that's only sort of, well, 24, 26 years ago. And I, it's just impossible to, I mean, I, I, I'm by no means naive to the fact that there is some iffy stuff in newspapers in the year 2020 as well. But, I, I mean, I, don't, I find it impossible to believe that like things like that would be written about a footballer who had moved from another country in this day and age. I mean, I, I really don't, and I'm sure people will be listening to this and thinking, well, actually, you know, there, there are bad things written about people, and obviously there are. But to, to that extent, it's just, it's, it seems so bizarre. In, in, our life, in our lifetime, this was happening. I think it's also kind of tied in with the fact that, and this is not to excuse it at all, but Klinsman was the first, he was kind of the first foreign superstar to come to the Premier League, I think. Like most of the other foreign players in the early years of the Premier League, were not as like generally speaking, yeah. they were kind of like less exciting players from uh, the Scandinavia or the Low Countries, um, and so it was it was slightly and obviously that was what was so exciting about Clinton. I'm sure James, you'll you can speak about this really well, like how exciting it was in 1994 to have this brilliant world class German centre forward, but it really it did really bring out the worst in people. Yeah, and I, I think you know part of it was this this perception of him as being a, a cheat and a diver that I think had been seeing both in the 1990 World Cup and in the 94 World Cup, and particularly in that 94 World Cup, I think. Um, so coming straight off the back of that, to see this guy of massively high profile arrive in our league to uh, you know to, to trouble our defences, I think probably put a few noses out of joint. Um, and, and here's, I think most people will remember or will have heard, kind of responded to that with like this kind of, this sort of sense of humour that kind of diffused it immediately with, you know, his, uh, what was it? He asked in the press conference where the nearest diving school was or whatever. And then, you know, obviously did the diving celebration when he scored in the first game against Sheffield Wednesday. So I, I think quite quickly he managed to kind of diffuse that and get people on side. And in this piece that Rafa's written, there's kind of a, a couple of mentions of columnists who quite quickly sort of were willing to eat a little bit of humble pie and say, well, actually, we got this wrong. This guy's a good bloke and, and we've made a bit of a mistake. So I'm by no means suggesting that Jürgen Klinsmann had kind of cured the British media or the British public of xenophobia, but it's certainly not going to have done any harm. No, it's interesting, though, that even just thinking fast forward to like 2016 when Pep Guardiola first moved to England, I'm sure, Jack, you, you would have been more kind of keenly attuned to this. But I remember a lot of scepticism, you know, the whole Fraudiola. And I feel like, obviously the papers weren't running 
you know xenophobic spanish headlines but i think there was still that what you touched on there james that sense of like oh this you know big time foreign charlie's going to come over he thinks it's going to be easy in the premier league i think there was definitely that uh prickliness with with guardiola and i suspect you probably still you know i'm sure some people had it with bielsa as well when he came a couple of years after that and you'd probably get it with a kind of innovator uh, who came to the Premier League now. So, so even if the xenophobia isn't as uh, explicit, I think there is still a pride in English football and a scepticism about you know people coming here and educating us. Well, remember when uh, quite early in Klopp's reign at Liverpool, when they drew that game at home to West Brom, mm. and he took the players up to the cop yeah, after yeah. the game and made them kind of like salute, the, like all in a line, arm in arm, like salute the cop at the end of the game to say like. To kind of make a point of saying thank you for staying with us during during this drab game, um, and to sort of just to sort of I mean it was a message to his players really I guess to sort of appreciate the fans and what they can give them, and he got absolutely hammered for that, like by people saying like oh it's only a draw at home to West Brom why are you celebrating and he he was just like well, well no that's not the point that's not what it's about it's not about the result it's about like thanking the fans for sticking with us, and and like. I mean, if he did that now, that would never happen with it. I mean, it, I think people kind of understand it now and are willing to accept it. But you know, even then, that must have been, what, like 2015, 2016? And he absolutely hammered for something that was like a sort of, you know, a, a slight cultural difference. Mm. When you look in broader terms at the story of English football since Klinsmann arrived, but, and you could basically date it to the arrival of Klinsmann, like the number one theme is... I think, or one of the main themes is the cosmopolitanization, if that's a word, of English football. Like it's gone from a league that was English managers, English owners, English players, English fans, English style of play, to seeing all all of those things, you know, English sponsors, to seeing foreign owners, foreign managers, foreign players, foreign styles of play, foreign sponsors, all the rest of it, and you know, increasingly tourists at the games, which some people get very upset about. Um, and Klinsman is really the start of it, I think. Um, and yet, every time, and you know, it's, and it, in many ways, it's been a great success for English football. And yet, with every, you see this in other in other areas as well. Like where any move towards liberalisation or cosmopolitanisation always has a kind of like xenophobic reaction or fight back. And at every point, when you know, whether it's Wenger, Bielsa, Guardiola, as you said, Charlie. When any manager comes over here, there's always this idea that, like, oh, well, if they're going to succeed here, they're going to have to adapt. They're going to have to learn the English way. I wrote a piece about this when City won the league in 2018, because when Guardiola arrived in English football in 2016, people were saying, oh, you know, he's going to have to adapt to the English way. He's going to have to, you know, play 4-2-3-1, hit long balls, uh, you know, two big centre-backs, two big holding midfielders, pace and power. And he's going to have to kind of, if he's going to have to succeed, he's going to have to do it how we do it. And remember that ridiculous spat over, oh, uh, he doesn't train tackles. And Guardiola said, I'm not, I'm not a coach for the tackles. When City lost, I think it was 4-2 against Leicester City. And everyone was saying, oh, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And the next season, City get 100 points. And they did so playing like an incredibly Guardiola style of play with two creative midfielders with like 70% possession, defending on the halfway line. It was an incredible, and it's like, Guardiola didn't meet that kind of like he didn't meet he didn't meet us halfway. He imposed his style of play and succeeded in doing so. And I just think with uh, I mean we're getting a long way from Jurgen Klinsmann here, but through the through the like the kind of foreignness or like through the integration of foreign players and foreign ideas and stuff into English football, 
there's we've always had to tell ourselves oh no like they're only succeeding by adapt by adapting to us they're only succeeding by embracing the best bits of us and it's like well in reality i don't think they are i think a lot of people come here and succeed because their ideas are just better than ours or that like Klopp is a better manager than the English managers Bielsa is a better manager than English managers sometimes and I think some but sometimes there is the kind of uh, the hybrid that works really well and you, you mentioned Wenger and that would be quite a good example of he brought tons in an attacking sense but more or less kept that English defensive core that had served George Graham so well and sort of fused the two together Jack your piece on Luka Modric as part of the series was was really really interesting and and that's a fascinating example of someone who you know in theory how on earth did this you know pretty uh slight short attacking midfielder he became a central midfielder in a two in the premier league and made it work um like that's such an interesting case of someone coming over and i, and I guess he, he he probably did some adapting as well but also he uh sort of imposed his skill and beauty on the team and on the Premier League. Yeah, well, this is like this is, I think, the most interesting part of the Modric story is that when when Spurs signed him in two thousand and eight, obviously it was Ramos at first, and then Redknapp took over, and then Redknapp's initial thoughts on Modric were, he, I think, he thought he was like an Aylberkovic type player, as in someone you want co- as a number ten or coming off the left, just get him into, you know, get him the ball in between the lines, and he'll create a chance with a final pass or or get a shot off or something. And like really the success of Modric's time at Tottenham was when Redknapp had the imagination to realise that in fact Modric would be better off in that midfield too, even though they had, even if more or less a 4-4-2 system with Van der Vaart up front with a centre forward, he, could, he was so good that you could trust him in that space. Which, and a lot of people said, oh, you can't play him there, you can't play him there, he's not a, he, can't, he can't hack it in the Premier League. But he was good enough that he could hack it. And that, because James, this is something that I know you've, you've written about as well in the past. Yeah, I mean, what I would say about that is I think he did, he really was playing in the middle in a 4-4-2 in the, his second season in England when it would have been Crouch and Defoe up front. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he, he would have been exposed in that way. And to be honest, you know, when Van der Vaart came in, um, you know, with respect, probably not the hardest working player. So I don't, I don't imagine... Uh, Modric would have been expecting too much kind of protection uh, from Van der Vaart either. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the thing is, you look at Modric and you see, and you, and you see a guy who's kind of quite small, quite slight, and, and you worry about him getting overrun by um, sort of bruising midfield players. But one, it, when when you're sat that little bit deeper, I guess you're kind of less exposed to being. Like, like battered by people like that because you're you're not really in quite the same part of the pitch are you I guess I mean he he, he was progressive but I, you wouldn't often see him kind of kind of floating around the edge of the opposition penalty area would you which is where maybe you would expect to get battered by who would be like 2009 would it be a sort of Lee Catamole or someone like that I guess maybe yeah I'm thinking like Stephen and Zonzi someone like uh, that yeah Stephen he was good Stephen and Zonzi he was um, yeah but yeah I, I and the other thing about him, of course, is that, you know, I think in his kind of upbringing, I, mean, I, I get the impression it's probably pretty tough in that part of the world to be a kid. He probably wasn't playing on amazing pitches. I don't imagine, like, coming to the Premier League and occasionally getting kicked by one of those players was really going to be something that held much fear for him. I remember Slavon Bilic once saying, this is when he was West Ham manager, he was talking about Modric and how well he'd done at Croatia. He said that, I think when Modric was growing up at Dinamo Zagreb, they loaned him out to the Bosnian League, to, I think it's uh, Zvinski Mostar, because he, he there it's harder pitches, harder conditions, less protection from the referees. And even though, you know, 
Croatia is hard work as well. I think the Croatian league is meant to be slightly more technical than the Bosnian league. And so he did that and he, you know, he, he toughened up and he is tough. Like I know he's obviously very small and everything and very, very skinny um, and has, has always looked that way right back from the start of his career. Like if you watch these old, watching some old clips of him at Dinamo Zagreb trying to uh, piece together back when Spurs first started scouting him, when Damian Connolly basically found him in that 2007-8 season. And he, lo- he does look, he does look so small and he's wearing those like quite baggy old school football shirts um, mm-hmm. Which look massive on billowing him. off him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which, um, but you're right. Like he, it's a complete triumph of his of his own skill and application and hard work. He became that important for Spurs. And I suppose it's maybe just James. I wonder if you you might feel a little bit sad that he left in 2012 and didn't you know give it another year or two just to see how well how much further he could have taken Tottenham. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you never want to see good players leave, and I think particularly in that in that following season, they really lacked that that kind of control in midfield. I mean, I think we talked a, a, a couple of months ago about um, VS Bias wanted to sign uh, Moutinho, didn't he? Uh, and, you know, you look at how Moutinho has done in the Premier League with Wolves as a as a kind of 30-plus player. And you do wonder exactly how good he could have been if he had been at Spurs from sort of 23-24. But sadly, it wasn't to be. That was that summer as well. And that, that, I talk about that actually in the piece on nearly transfers and spoke to people around that deal and it was really, really close. They basically ran out of time because Modric went quite late in the window and some would say in classic Spurs style, too late. And then the, the Moutinho deal, just they literally ran out of time, but there was the will on all sides for it to get done. And that, that was that same summer. So yeah, it's a, quite a, a big sliding doors moment potentially. I mean, the counterpoint to that, I guess, would be that they did sign Dembele and he ended up being the sort of, I mean, I don't know if you call him a sort of deep line playmaker, but he was the sort of, he was a midfield player who could put his foot on the ball and could, ultimately, you know, it took a couple of years, but he was the player that would set the tempo. So, you know, yeah, like you say, it's a bit of a sliding doors moment, but that kind of cuts both ways, doesn't it, really? It does, but the De- but Dembele took him a while, didn't it, before he became yeah. that player. I, I feel like, you know, for those first couple of years, he was a bit lost what you know you didn't really know where he played or what he did well um so it just it would have meant that in that 2012 to like 2015 period they would have absolved that loss of absorbed the loss of uh modric that bit better yeah so that series is currently running on the athletic uh there's a new article coming every day i don't think i'm giving too much away if i say we've got two more spurs players showing up pretty soon Hi there, I'm David Ornstein and I've launched a brand new show on YouTube, Ask Ornstein, where I answer questions from our athletic subscribers. To get your question answered, simply leave a comment at the bottom of my column every Monday and I'll choose my favourites. To watch the show, head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel and a new episode will be up every Tuesday afternoon. Finally today, this is the first pod since Arsenal won the FA Cup final. Um... And the reason we're doing we're mentioning this is not for banter, but because this obviously has a big impact on Spurs, doesn't it, Charlie? It does, yeah, because it means they have to play three qualifying rounds if they want to uh, get into the Europa League group stages. Which, given how uh, congested the fixture schedule is going to be anyway, I mean, if you get into the Europa League, um, James and I were talking about this earlier. I think it's like six weeks consecutively that you're playing in the group stage. Uh, having those extra three ga- three games is not really what you want. Um, I mean, there's also the risk, again, there's something James and I were discussing, that it's not, you know, over two legs, you'd back yourselves in, in against the kind of calibre opposition Spurs would be playing, that even if you had a slip-up in 
in the, in one game you could probably rescue it in the second but obviously the well not obviously it's it's different this year from ever before but these qualifiers are just one leg so there is you'd think that'd be a bit of a leveler and more scope for upset so I think Mourinho will be on it though from the start. He, you know, he, he's going to take it seriously. They need to be in this competition uh, for financial reasons and, and I think footballing reasons. It's a chance. It's a competition they will take seriously. Should take seriously. Have a good chance of winning. Um, but yeah, so they'll be entered into. I think it's the second qualifying round. Then have to play the third and then the final playoff. So yeah, three extra games potentially and potentially with some major travel. I do wonder with those one-legged qualifiers whether. I- the fact that you're not going to be playing in front of sort of hostile crowds um, may sort of counteract the, th- the kind of risk of only playing the one leg. Uh, but I guess what you're really going to see is kind of a, a stronger team play than otherwise uh, perhaps would. But, you know, e- equally it could go the other way. Can it? Spurs could end up with, with three home draws against clearly much weaker teams and be able to play, you know, be able to make 11 changes and just kind of waltz through. Also, Spurs, I think Spurs, Spurs are in a good position. They've got the best coefficient by far of the teams who I think are entering that stage ahead of Basel, Wolfsburg and Copenhagen. And there are some fun um, some fun potential opponents uh, in that round. There's, so I was looking for teams that had a Spurs connection. James, there's two teams that Spurs have played in the sort of fairly recent past that are on the list. Can you name them? Uh, one of them is... Um... Famagusta, isn't it? The Cypriot team. Yep. Yeah, they're there. Yeah, I think Spurs beat 6-1 in like 2006 or 2007, Seven. maybe? 2007. And a team uh, that Spurs played in 2011 from not ooh. too far from here? Not too far. Oh, is it, um, is it Shamrock Rovers? It is Shamrock Rovers. Ah. You know who scored their first goal against Shamrock Rovers, don't you? Harry Kane. It's Harry Kane. Oh, yeah, of course. 2011, it's such a long time. I'm ago. doing a Harry Kane celebration to myself. A rubbish little jump and fist pump. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then you've also got um, Zvinsky Mostar, who just mentioned in the context of Modric. Uh, CSK Sofia, Berbatov's first club, I think. Uh, and my, my favourite tenuous Spurs connection, and this is really scraping the barrel, FC Kairat of Kazakhstan have just signed former Tottenham transfer target Wagner Love. <laughs> How old is he? target. How old is he? I would guess like 37. He's got to be 40. Wagner Love? Surely. He feels, he, he feels like 36. a very... Two, two, 36. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, he's a very what? sort of 2008... Like everyone wanted to sign him in 2008, yeah. didn't they? He's very much in that sort of... Yeah, Stephen yeah. A- Stephen Appiah, uh, Miguel Veloso sort of bracket. My main memory of Wagner Love is that... Damiao. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that he was playing for CSK Sofia... It, sorry, CSK Moscow... In the sort of in the mid two thousands, and of course, in I think it was either I think it was two thousand eight rather than two thousand nine, City signed Joe from CSK Moscow, and obviously because I didn't have anything better to do with my life, I spent so much time <laughs> uh, like scouring the internet for CSK Moscow clips, stats, everything to write this massive blog post about Joe and how good he was. So I, I must have watched hours of Wagner Love grainy YouTube footage battering in goals against uh, in the Russian league back then so I've, I've always felt a strange affinity for him and I'm pleased to see that he's still still going strong at the age of 36 I just googled Wagner Love actually and it auto-corrected to Wagner Love Shack uh, which is Wagner from X Factor doing the, an iconic version of Love Shack which I will probably watch after we finish recording here can we play uh, out to was, that Tom please yeah that would be amazing if we could 
Um, <laughs> also, Jack, I just think, with, like, are you going to pre-write all those features just in case Spurs draw one of those four clubs? So the kind of the Wagner Love derby, the the Harry Kane's going back to the old club, like, j- just in case. Just in case, yeah, yeah, that would be quite a fun, a fun use of time. So we got a tweet in the other day saying you should, like, someone DM me saying you should like wrap up the pods better. It always sounds shit, which is true. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to do like a better ending now, if that's okay. Unless anybody else got anything that they want to say. No, I'm looking forward to how you're going to do that. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on the podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening. Please tweet us or comment via the app if you've got any thoughts. Thanks, of course, to Charlie and James and producer Tom. Uh, we will be back again next week, by which point we're sure Hoybjerg will be a Tottenham player. Uh, there'll be plenty more holiday photos on Instagram for us to analyse. See you then. Love shack, yeah, love shack.